Everyone seemed to be in a blind hurry, and there was no relief in sight. Technology rushed us ever forward, and simple civility, a certain kindness and care, got sacrificed. Elizabeth Berg, The Year of Pleasures You're listening to The Sill with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. We begin our very first podcast for 2024. So we talked about this many times over the years, and we brought this up between Christmas and New Year's. And I mentioned to you that we've taken our granddaughter, who'll be nine in May, along with her parents and my sister, who really initiated the idea to see the Nutcracker down in downtown Toronto. And when we were coming out of the theater after the event, my granddaughter sort of tugged at me and said, Grandpa, you and your sister are really different. And I said, yes, sweetheart, in some ways we are. What made you say that? Well, she said, because, Grandpa, you don't rush. So here we are. We're talking about speed today. Speed, too fast, you move too fast. Fast cars, fast food, fast women, fast talkers. Our addiction to speed. What's going on, Peter? Why are we so addicted to hurry up? Well, I think there's a lot of factors. The most obvious sign is technology. Technology has increased the pace of everything. We're on that train. Technology has made things much quicker. It has made us, broadly speaking, more impatient. We're used to getting quick answers, everything at our fingertips. We no longer have to dig for things. It takes much less time to access information. It takes less time to source information. And technology has also just sped up our ensuing lifestyles in general. Because if you can access information faster and get to things faster, you end up doing things faster. So your level of patience and so on decreases along with that. That's my broad answer. Mm -hmm. And there are obviously a lot of negatives in that scenario, because the faster you move and the faster you act, the more prone you are to making mistakes. And I think that's a, a simple life lesson people learn every day, <laughs> all and have learned over the centuries. I guess the question really is, how do we mitigate the downside? There are upsides, obviously. Saving that time has allowed people to do other things they wanted to do, yada, yada, yada. But how do we mitigate the downside of this constant expectation of having everything now and the anxiety that kind of underpins that? Well, maybe it would be easier to have this discussion if we actually outline what these negative things are, because I think a lot of it becomes also a question of awareness. I think many of us go through our day without even being aware of many of the things that are affecting us. So when we talk about mitigating something, maybe we should also talk about what it is that we're trying to mitigate. Right. We've stated technology is the obvious one. And of course, the ubiquitous smartphone has to top the list in terms of how it's changed our life. A walking dictionary, walking encyclopedia, speaking device, or maps, our medical histories, everything's in our pockets now. So let's talk about the effects. What are some of the most annoying things you find? Well, to me, being a writer and a lover of words and sophisticated language, the devaluation of language that is 
been the result of speeded up technology. It's been one of my bugaboos, one of my peccadilloes, if you like. The fact is that all of these short forms, LOL, WTF, the emoticons, sending someone a little heart icon rather than actually saying in language what one feels, is these shortcuts serve to devalue language and make sophisticated communication less prevalent. And I think that's a problem. We need more nuance in the world, not less. And so all of these technological shortcuts, to me, are not a healthy thing for the human mind, the human brain, for children coming up in this world, growing up in this world. It's also the amount of effort that goes into it, because these shortcuts that you're referring to also mean that we're not dedicating the same amount of energy or time or thought to our replies, our responses to things. And so sometimes I think we perhaps make responses that are similar to all types of situations and individuals when in many of these cases, we would automatically put more emphasis to certain people or certain relationships. You would not talk the same way, for example, to your spouse as you would to an acquaintance. And sometimes these things that you're referring to makes the communication seem all very similar. Yeah. And I think the thing that has been harmed through all this is the art of listening as we communicate. So rather than taking in what the person has said, giving it time to kind of roll around in one's mind and then coming up with a thoughtful response has gone out the window with the expectation that things are going to happen immediately. In social media, someone uploads something, a statement, a meme, a a video, what have you, and within seconds, there are responses to that upload from people out there who have reacted to it. And there's no wait time. And I'm wondering whether it might be a good thing for social media corporations to actually intervene, if you like, and slow down the ability to respond immediately to an upload let there be a delay of a half an hour or something, and then it can be responded to. That would be a novel idea that might uh, cause some uh, a stir <laughs> on the one hand, but it might be helpful on the other. Well, it's the equivalent of what we had when we were writing to each other on paper. When you were sitting there with a pen and paper, you could change your mind. You could review it. It didn't leave your hands and go, oh my God, I forgot to do this, or I need to change that. You took your time. You wrote something. You processed it. Yeah. And went on from there. Yeah. And a good communication, a good listening means that the listener isn't three steps ahead into the future or thinking about what they're going to say in response. They actually stay in the moment. So devaluing the moment has been an issue as well. And we've talked about this before. A good example of that is the act of eating with one's family or with one's friends, how people, when they eat, rush through. Many people rush through their meal, gobble it down, and head off to do something else that they've wanted to do. I know that you and your culture, being Italian, that's a whole different world. It doesn't happen like that. Absolutely. The eating is part of the social fabric. It's downtime where you spend eating, talking, communicating about various things. It's very much a social exchange. There's also the physiological aspect of it, because when you take your time, it's better for your mastication, it's better for your digestion, your general state of well-being improves, your enjoyment of the food that you're eating increases. 
And there's also the mental aspect of it that's more relaxed and you're more apt to participate in conversation and so on if there aren't one or more people anxious to leave. You're removing the anxiety that is often occurring in modern day situations, whether you're eating on the run or you begin your lunch by saying, I've only got 15 minutes. Uh, I hope it doesn't take longer than three minutes for the order to get here. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing to become aware of the speed at which we live our lives. It's yet another thing to actually change that and do something about it. I've tried, for example, changing the speed at which I do my morning chores here on the farm in Nova Scotia. I clean out the stalls every morning and I have a routine and a certain pace that I go. And one morning I decided to try to slow that down and really take my time doing it. And within 10 to 15 minutes, I found myself, well, back at the usual speed, <laughs> usual pace. So I think part of it is that individuals have a different internal clock working for them. And that kind of determines the pace that they're comfortable with in engaging the world at large. So I think we differ from person to person on that front. But on the other hand, it is difficult to shift gears in that way without being really, really conscious of doing it and working hard at it. Well, I think it also becomes a lifestyle choice apart from a personality trait. You have to decide if you want to make skipping meals, losing sleep and ordering double espressos, you have to make a decision about how it is that you want to live. And I think that the decisions that you make based on how you want your life to be will determine a lot of the behavior. So I think the impetus to change something needs to come from a vision of how you actually want to live and whether or not we even take the time to do that or do we even understand how we want to live. I don't know that everybody has a clear picture of that, but I do believe that the determinant factor in any decision is always knowing exactly what you want and where you want to go. Yeah, and when you're young, of course, you're not really thinking about that very much. You've got all this energy to burn and a world to explore, mistakes to be made, and it's quite natural for young people to race around this world like a pinball, making mistakes and exploring and having all these experiences. And then as you get older, like us junior seniors here, it starts to go in the opposite direction. We want to slow things down in a way to experience life to the fullest as much as possible before we pass on. Time, in a sense, can sort of slow down. It has, for me, in a sense, slowed down in an interesting way. It's psychological as well as physiological. I would also add that slowing down can take two different forms. It can actually mean that you reduce your speed or that you reduce the number of things that you're going to tackle. In essence, reducing the traffic without having to reduce the speed. So you will choose to do one or two things as opposed to five or six, which I think is another one of the elements that we have in our culture. There's a desire to do many things at once, sometimes by circumstance and sometimes by our habits. Mm -hmm. So if you reduce the quantity, if you reduce the clutters, I like to say, then you increase the focus on those things that you do do. And I think one of the things about aging or life experience, perhaps is a better way to put that, is that you are more honed into those things. You understand yourself better. You understand what makes you tick and how you want to spend your time. And of course, as you mentioned, the sheer lack of time 
or because you have less time to waste, you become naturally more efficient. At least many of us do. I don't know that you can make that rule across the board, but the circumstances dictate a lot of the choices that we make. And the fact is that us junior seniors have bridged the divide between analog and digital. And in fact, all of my young life was spent in an analog world, which is, as we know, a fair bit slower than the digital reality that we face today. So I think it's in us to want to slow it down. I find sometimes in my digital interactions in the world, let's say, that I have an aversion to the way it operates because of that analog background. It just feels too quick. It feels too shallow. There's not enough room to explore the nuances and the sophistication of whatever subject matter it is we're talking about because it just flies by. It scrolls by so quickly. So it's very disconcerting to negotiate that world. Easier for the younger generation, of course. Now, for me specifically, I have a good deal of experience with the digital world. And for me, the experience that I had with analog benefits me in terms of balancing the two. So I could stay in the digital world quite comfortably from a logistical standpoint. But I would choose not to because... I don't derive the same joys from that sort of distracted world. I don't find it enjoyable when you finally get an opportunity to sit down with people and relax, that people are still looking at their phones every five minutes or being pulled away or using Siri in the middle of a conversation. These things that once in a while is okay, but when it happens repeatedly. So for me, it's not the aversion to the technology as it is much the realization that I like the quality of some of the things that the analog world offers. Yeah. And the whole world, for example, of AI that has emerged, which has been used by writers, for example, chat GPT and all of that, to save time, so to speak. And basically, what amounts to a kind of plagiarism app pulls together all of these uh, data points and creates a facsimile of a piece of writing that could have been written by Hemingway or whoever you plug into the application. To me, it's very, very disconcerting. It's too easy, too fast, and the writer doesn't have to exercise their writing muscles at all. So there's that sort of thing that technology has brought into our reality. And the other aspect too, Peter, is that the fact is the anxiety that a lot of people feel in the world, bolstered by the speed of technology, bolstered by the way the media operates, is based in our sense of our own mortality, that we don't have a long time on this planet. And so we're trying to squeeze in as much as we can. And so there's an underlying anxiety to get things done, to leave a legacy if you're older. So all of that is percolating and swirling around us as we negotiate the various speeds of our lives. Look, at you could go to Jamaica tomorrow and you'd have a completely different sense of speed on an island like that, compared to where we are in the Western world and the big cities. So context is important too. Yes, the environment. So in a cold climate, you're almost in a situation where you have to move to stay warm, whereas in a hot climate, you almost have to slow down to stay cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also a difference between urban and rural life and speed. I was in Toronto not too long ago, and the speed and the pace and the noise of the city was kind of overwhelming because I live in the countryside, in farming country among Mennonites, 
And it's a totally different relationship to time. If you're a farmer, your relationship to time is quite different because you're looking at how long the crops take to grow. You're looking at harvest season. How long is that? You're looking at the weather conditions as they evolve over the year, right? It's not just what's happening now and get it done. You have to have patience as a farmer, huge patience. So that sense of time, psychological time, is quite different even in the northern hemisphere between urban and rural. Absolutely. The speed of nature generally, things do not transform in an hour, a day, or a week. Things take time. There's transformation. There's evolution. There's adaptation. There are periods that are required in order for things to change. Yes, of course. And it requires a certain kind of um, equanimity, if you like, in the face of all the changes that happen around one. Because if you're a farmer, for example, you have to roll with the weather because you really can't control it. And so you have to be open and adaptive in your mentality compared to a city where you're protected from the elements for the most part. You don't have to worry about that stuff. You just have to worry about whether the subway breaks down <laughs> or the bus or what have you, whether the technology breaks down. Uh, that's the concern in the city. And you use the word control. We've created a world where we are at least attempting to, if we haven't, to control literally everything that we do. And when you control the environment, you also control the speed of that environment because you're not leaving it to outside sources. You're leaving it to your internal program. So you create the roads, you create the speed limits, you create the speed of change of the lighting. You create the entire flow pattern, whereas in nature, it has its own time, its own place. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense, of course. And interestingly enough, I moved here to Nova Scotia from Ontario, and the first thing I noticed was the fact that drivers here drive more slowly. They drive under the speed limit, typically, many, many drivers. Whereas in Ontario, you typically drive over the speed limit. People are hungry to get where they need to go. Here in Nova Scotia, things unfold at a slower pace, we found. Even getting contractors to the property to do something, it can take a bit longer to make that happen than in Ontario. So we have to shift gears, adapt, and slow ourselves down. And I think if you can slow yourself down, you can actually change who you are and how you operate in the world. So it's a good thing to think about slowing oneself down and seeing how that shifts our relationship to people, to technology, and to nature. Let's talk about the day-to-day -day things that people may or may not be aware of, where speed or speed of movement or speed of response is actually affecting their lives. So, for example, speed limits on roadways. I find that very few people on major highways adhere to the speed limits. I think that's a factor of how we live, this constant race, sometimes even in the middle of a highway where there's literally nowhere to go. People will continue to accelerate from lane to lane, perhaps advancing 10 meters or 20 meters in a three-kilometer stretch thinking that they're moving faster when, in fact, they're going nowhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And it's very frustrating when you're in that traffic jam and people are dipping and diving and swerving around in front of you. You're going, where the hell are these people going? They might get there 20 seconds faster than I will. 
But short of rushing to get a heart transplant or something, there's no reason for it that I can see. Yeah, and that's the obvious one. What about the situation where people are going from point A to point B and they leave themselves just enough time to get there, not considering the possible things that may occur, whether it's traffic jams or construction, not giving themselves enough time. I think that's the other problem we have oftentimes is that we don't give ourselves the time. We don't give ourselves even time to sort of degas, as I would call it. So if you have to be somewhere, why not leave 5, 10, 15 minutes before? Give yourself a few extra minutes so that if something does happen, it doesn't ruin your entire day from the stresses of thinking you're going to be late two or three minutes. That's your flatulence theory of time, right? The degassing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I honestly believe that we're sometimes full of flatulence. I mean, it, uh, it's, it's a way of being. It's a way of uh, living in a, and it's a way of seeing things. That mm -hmm. And to me, again, it's not about judging how we all differ in our approach. But if you're feeling all that tension, all that fatigue that you're encountering from these things that you involve yourself in, whether it's rushing to get to places, whether you're eating too fast, whether you're already talking about how you don't have time. I hear this frequently with people begin the conversation with, oh, I don't have time for anything. <laughs> or I'm glad I, I got you now because uh, 10 minutes from now, I wouldn't have had the time to even stop and say hello. The conversation begins with them telling you either how busy they are or how they don't have time. Right. And there are all these activities in life that one can engage in to begin to slow down. Meditation, yoga, martial arts, all kind of give one a, a different take on how quickly we need to move and how we can slow ourselves down, center ourselves, get in the zone, so to speak, and enjoy the moment. Or even just going out in nature will slow you down. You can't race through nature in a way. Nature will slow you down, whether it's through the elements or, or the vegetation or rocks that will trip you up, but you cannot rush through nature. So there's all these avenues for finding ways of changing our rhythm. So when you look at your own life, you lived in Ontario for most of your life, and you now live in Nova Scotia. You've really changed the environment that you're in, the society that you're in, the culture that you're in, even though you're still speaking the same language and so on. Are you beginning to see any kind of impact on yourself? Has it changed anything that you do now? It's very difficult to put it into words. It's more just a, a sense deep down of this uh, tectonic shifting of one's character, of one's spirit, if you like, just the challenge to shift and engage this different environment. And again, as you said, it's not Saudi Arabia, it's English-speaking Canada, but there are lots of differences, including the nature, including the soil and the very air that one is breathing, in a sense, feels different from what I grew up with. So all of that stuff, absorbing all of this, is, of course, going into my deeper recesses and changing me, but not so much in ways that I can put my finger on and elucidate in words. One thing that I'd like to touch on is how our behavior affects coming generations and whether or not it's significant in terms of how we handle ourselves and what we model for future generations. 
and the level of anxiety or obsession with time and so on we pass on to our progeny. Do you have any thoughts on any of that at all, Harry? Yeah, so all you have to do is look at the conflicts that we see in the world today, the two major ones, Russia and Ukraine and uh, Israel and Hamas in Gaza, to see that we are not doing a very good job modeling for our children. These are adults who are heads of government who are not slowing down to negotiate, to think through the complications of the conflict and to try to find some solution to it. They're just reacting and reactive. So it's not a good sign, uh, unfortunately, or a good model for our, our children. So we have to do it individually in families, I think, more than at the national level to change. Exactly. And reduce the day-to-day anxiety and obsession with things and show our children that we have time for them. Because that's the other thing that I think is pretty pervasive, the time that we allow for simple pleasures, for simple interactions, where children actually feel that they're desired, that time spent with them is of value, and that we forego some of the more basic things that we become preoccupied with. So, for example, when you do come home, drop your phones, drop your technology for a while, sit down, play, spend time. It's not that simple, not that easy, because we're so overwhelmed with the speed of the world that it's very hard not to jump into that speed and imitate it in some form or other. So I get it. I understand why people may be in that place. But we just need to be more aware and try to find ways of shifting the rhythm and maybe working more with our internal clock rather than the external clock of the world as it pushes in on us. Do you think that it'll take something more than just our routine behaviors and time to change these habits? Or do you think it'll take something much bigger to make it happen? Yeah, I think the people we elect need to take some responsibility in that. I mean, uh, one example I mentioned earlier in, in our conversation is social media and how they could indeed institute a simple delay app that would stop people from reacting immediately. You'd have to wait to respond. That alone would change things. There's a lot that the powers that be can do if they really want to shift things in the world. And don't you think there should be more emphasis on self-care? Yes, of course. We need to obviously care for ourselves. Who else is going to care for us ultimately if we don't? So yes, becoming self-aware of how our anxiety and our hurrying around and rushing about and not taking time to smell the roses is really destroying our lives in a certain way, debilitating us from actually enjoying the moment and making us demean or devalue the moment that is the most precious thing in our lives, is the moment, each moment. And why not value that rather than rushing away from it towards some future unknown? Yes. We've said what it is that we need to do or what it is that we want to do. Do you think, in closing, do you think that we have a very difficult time aligning our basic understanding and desire to do something and our ability to do so? Yes, because it seems overwhelming if we try to do too much too soon. I would say choose one small thing in one's life. For example, you could take the way you brush your teeth in the morning and how quickly you brush your teeth. What if you decided to, I don't know, double or triple the time that you normally take brushing your teeth? What would that mean? Well, it means you'd brush your teeth for a longer period. 
your teeth would be less bacteria prone and it might mean less trips to the dentist. So do one thing like that, one small thing and see what kind of repercussions happen. And I think you take it from there and who knows what can happen from there. But here's the thing, Peter, I've got such a busy life. I've got to get moving here. We have to hurry up and end this podcast or I'm going to kaplutz. <laughs> You're going to kaplutz. <laughs> <laughs> this being a new year, I hope it's a good one. And we really appreciate you, the listener, those of you who have supported us for the last six and a half years. And as always, we welcome hearing back from you. A thank you to you. And hopefully you'll find some peace and a slowdown as well. I ditto that remark. Ditto, ditto, ditto. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.